The following presentation was produced by the Buddhist Society of Victoria. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, so let us uh, continue. And as I said before, now we're going to have a look at the five hindrances, uh, this very important set of qualities that is uh, often talked about in Buddhism. And uh, just in brief, before we uh, start to look at the suttas, uh, just to kind of give you a little bit of background, these five hindrances are obviously called hindrances because they hinder progress, uh, especially in meditation. They refer to meditation really more than anything else. And uh, they are, just in brief, they are uh, sensual desire or sensory desire, and it refers to any desire in the realm of the five senses. Uh, it's much more broad than what some people might think of as sensual desire. It's kind of this very large, encompassing, almost all desire that people have relate to that particular realm. And it's ill will, which is uh, obviously wishing harm on other beings and people. And then you have uh, uh, tiredness or drowsiness and lethargy or something like that, so, you know, sleepiness, these kind of things. Uh, and then you have restlessness and remorse, uh, the agitation of the body and the mind, and the remorse that comes from acting in the wrong way, which also is a kind of agitation, uh, which is uh, overcome by uh, morality. Uh, and then the last one is uh, doubt. Uh, so these are the five hindrances, the five things that block you from making progress in meditation. And... Um, uh, these five hindrances, uh, they really refer to very refined defilements. They don't refer to just any kind of uh, you know, desires or any kind of ill will, rage and that kind of stuff. Uh, it refers to very refined aspects of these things. Uh, and in the suttas, uh, they are sometimes called upa kilesa. Uh, and kilesa is a kind of standard word in Buddhism that means defilement. Uh, upa kilesa, when it has the prefix upa, it refers to refined aspects of these uh, defilements. Uh, yeah, and there are various suttas, like the Upa Kilesa Sutta, uh, in the middle-length sayings, the Majjhima Nikaya, number 128, uh, which is all about how to deal with the refined hindrances of the mind. And uh, among those hindrances you find in there are also uh, is also <laughs> talked about the you know five hindrances, but in a kind of roundabout way, uh, and also other refined things that might stop you from making progress. Uh, but the five hindrances are the usual kind of set that you see in the suttas. Uh, and they are very refined. And that's why when you look at the suttas, you look at things like the gradual training, uh, the gradual training which I often use to teach uh, retreats because it is, gives a kind of whole uh, layout of the whole path from the beginning to the end. Uh, and in that gradual training, uh, you f always find the five hindrances just before you get to the jhanas. Uh, yeah? So you get to the jhanas, which are the profound samadhis. Uh, just before that, you find the five hindrances. Uh, so they are the final thing that you have to abandon as you enter the jhana states. Uh, and uh, these five hindrances are, uh, are let go of by practicing Satipatthana practice. Uh, when you read the Satipatthana Sutta, you realize it is full. What the, one of the main aspects of the Satipatthana Sutta is to understand the defilements of the mind. Uh, yeah, it kind of goes through the whole Sutta. It, uh, uh, you know, talk about the various Vedana, the various feelings that are related to defilements, uh, the Samisa Vedana, Vedana which relates to uh, 
the sensory world and then you have the similar kind of thing in the chitta nupassana contemplation of the mind and then in the dhamma nupassana it is very prominent talks about the five hindrances specifically and how to overcome them so they're overcome through uh, satipatthana practice mindfulness of breathing specifically you do the breath contemplation and then you overcome these hindrances as a consequence how does that work why do we overcome the hindrances by doing breath contemplation and uh, one of the reasons is simply, as I mentioned the other day, is that when you watch the breath, uh, you don't nourish the hindrances. Uh, you are keeping your attention on the breath, uh, and for the hindrances to kind of stay alive, they need to be nourished. You need to kind of look at things in a certain way, and that nourishes desire, it nourishes ill will, and this kind of thing. Uh, if you take away the nourishment by just watching the breath, uh, then these things die down as a consequence. Uh, and also, and this is why at the end of the Anapanasati Sutta, it talks about the Anicca Nupassana, uh, the Viraga Nupassana, and the uh, Niroda Nupassana. That is the contemplation that you do at the end of the mindfulness of breathing. And of course, what you contemplate there, you contemplate the one of the things you contemplate is the hindrances and how they arise, how they disappear. So when you come to the end of your meditation practice, by reviewing what is happening, you can come to understand better what is going on with hindrances, with everything, and how meditation actually makes progress. So uh, uh, this, so this is what what these are. These are the refined things. And as I mentioned before, the opposite of the hindrances is the bojangas. The more you reduce the hindrances, the more you have the bojangas arising in your mind. All these other qualities, the energy, the pity, the mindfulness, all of these things rely on and depend on a reduction in the hindrances for their existence. They are kind of exact almost opposites, opposite qualities or inverse qualities of each other. Of these five hindrances, the first Two ones, the first two, the uh, uh, sensory desire and ill will, are the most important ones. Uh, and uh, they are the most important ones for many reasons. And one of the reasons is that uh, uh, whenever anything is mentioned in the suttas, there's also always a sequence to these things. Uh, it is never random. Uh, and at the very first of the five hindrances is kamachanda, is sensory desire. Uh, that is the most important one. Uh, and all the other hindrances are, in a sense, come about in large part because there is sensory desire in the first place. So by withdrawing the mind from sensory desire, all the other hindrances also die down to a large extent. So this is the, the number one problem. And if you give that up, basically when you depart from the sensual realm, then all the other hindrances follow along and also disappear as a consequence. So for that reason, it's useful to focus a little bit on that one. But maybe even more important from a practical perspective is ill will, uh, because it is much more easy to deal with, it's much more easy to understand that ill will is a problem, uh, yeah, and it's much more unpleasant, it causes so much more difficulties in life. Uh, so because of that, the focus on ill will is probably far more uh, suitable, uh, yeah, and you focus on that, and actually by focusing on that, uh, you find that desires also come down a little bit, and also the other hindrances die down. Uh, so by focusing on those two, all the five hindrances come down a long way. And it's quite easy to understand why that is the case, because both ill will and sensual desire, these are things that are inherently 
uh, restless. They are about the future, about the past. They are about not being in the present moment. So uh, clearly they lead to things like restlessness, the fourth hindrance. They lead to tiredness of the mind because when you have ill will, it tires the mind out. But also the pursuit of sensual things tends to tire the mind out because you are running after things and craving. So all of these things, they build, they support these other hindrances. So by removing the first two, all of them tend to follow along and disappear, which is quite nice. So when people ask about the hindrances, usually, especially if they ask about tiredness and sloth and torpor and these kind of things, usually uh, the answer is focus on the first two. Uh, that is usually where the problem lies uh, for most people. Uh, don't really have to, you can't really deal so much directly with the other ones, uh, except uh, when the meditation becomes very deep. Uh, that is when these other hindrances kind of have a life of their own, if you wish, uh, and you can deal with them more directly. Uh. So that is just a little bit of uh, background uh, on the five uh, hindrances. Uh, and again, if you look at the, uh, the way of the gradual training uh, uh, that you uh, find in suttas such as the uh, Chulahati Padopama Sutta, the uh, shorter sutta on the elephant's footprint, uh, Majjhimanikai 27, uh, which is a very nice sutta, one of my favorite suttas perhaps. You're not supposed to have favorite suttas, but I still have it. Uh, maybe that's, a, I'm not sure if that's bad or good, but... Uh, <laughs> And uh, there, again, is one of the suttas that show you the whole outline of the gradual training. Uh, and what you see there is that uh, a large part of the overcoming of the defilements of the mind happen long before you get to the five hindrances. Uh, things like sense restraint uh, is about overcoming defilements of the mind. Just practicing morality, virtue in speech and body, that is also about overcoming defilements of the mind to a large extent. Uh, and you have Sati Sampajanya, the clear comprehension about what you're doing. That is also about overcoming hindrances of the mind uh, or defilements of the mind. So there's a lot of overcoming defilements before you come to the end, uh, come to the five hindrances. Uh, and all of those are focused on the first two hindrances, uh, on desire and aversion or desire and ill will. Uh, aversion is a bit different from ill will, by the way. And that's, I think, an important point when you read the suttas. Uh, when you see the word aversion, usually it refers to the opposite of desire, not ill will as such. So, for example, if you don't like some food, you're kind of averse to it. Oh, I don't want to see that. That's yucky. Yeah, that's yuckiness is aversion. So, and that is kind of one way of thinking about it. Whereas ill will is actually really wishing harm upon other people. You have a kind of a, a, a bad intention towards others. That's really ill will. And uh, you, are, you are kind of angry with them. That's ill will. That's very quite different from aversion when you think about it. Uh. So, uh, that is a little bit of uh, introduction uh, for the five hindrances. Uh. And uh, now let us have a look at them in a bit more detail. Uh. And uh, so this sutta is from, again, the Bojanga Sangyutta, the Awakening Factor Sangyutta. Uh, this is the second sutta called The Body. And it goes uh, as follows. At Savati, mendicants, this body is sustained by food. It depends on food to continue, and without food it doesn't continue. In the same way, the five hindrances are sustained by fuel. They depend on fuel to continue, and without fuel they don't continue. In Pali, 
the word for fuel and food is the same. It is called ahara, and it can be perhaps translated as nutriment. It's called nutriment. That's how Vikibodhi translates it. And uh, the idea is that the physical body, uh, if you don't get food, it doesn't take long before you, you are finished. Uh, and uh, also, uh, not only, so the physical food does two things. When you are young, you need physical food to grow and to develop. Uh, and then to, when you are fully grown, you need uh, food to sustain the body, yeah, to keep it going. Yeah. And it's exactly the same idea with the five hindrances. Uh, these things that are nutriments of the five hindrances they are things that support make the five hindrances grow on the one hand and also sustain them once they have come into existence on the other hand has this double double thing and of course as with the body if you withdraw the nutriment or the food for the body what happens it withers away and eventually it just bad dies falls over and you end up thin and malnourished and eventually you are finished and uh, with the body, that's a bad thing. But if you malnourish the hindrances, it's a good thing. Yeah. So this is the sutta on the malnourishment of the hindrances. How to kind of um, make them really thin and weak so that you can overcome them altogether. Withdrawing the food, uh, the nutriment uh, from those five hindrances. Uh. So let's see how this is done. And uh, uh, he, so the Buddha says, and what fuels the arising of sensual desire? Uh, uh, or when it has arisen, makes it increase and grow. There is the feature of beauty. Frequent improper attention to that fuels the arising of sensual desire. When it has arisen, makes it increase and grow. So here again we come to this base, very basic Buddhist idea that everything exists in a network of causes and condition. Nothing exists independently sensual desire is not something that has a kind of just lives on its own in your mind and you can't get rid of it you can because it exists because of causes and conditions and it's a such an important buddhist principle because it is really based on the idea of non-self anatta an atman in sanskrit because as when there is no self when there is no inherent essence to a being it means that everything we experience, all the mental constituents and the physical constituents, uh, they are supported only by causes and conditions and nothing else. Uh, they have no inherent essence to them. Uh, and this is kind of interesting. Sometimes you might discuss, you know, things like uh, uh, the, you know, anything really belonging to the mental realm with someone who is a non-Buddhist, uh, and you might tell them that, oh yeah, you know, in Buddhism our job is to overcome anger, uh, yeah, f completely. Uh, and they said, that's impossible. Anger is kind of part of the mind. You can't get rid of that. Uh, and that is uh, precisely the problem, is that very often we have this idea of things being inherently part of who we are, uh, even desire, and so it becomes impossible to overcome it. And this is one of those things that uh, what is so surprising about uh, mental development. Uh, you might think that mental development itself is impossible, uh, and the reason why, well, you know, it has it's possible to some extent because you can see your mind changing, but uh, you may not understand fully the potential for mental development because uh, you have a feeling that uh, many of these things that we have inside of us are inherent to us. You can't actually change those things. You can't develop away from that. They are part of who you are. So very often the sense of self gets in the way of uh, 
mental development by lying to you and telling you that you cannot you can only go so far uh, if people really knew how far they could develop their minds i think they would be far more interested in meditation practice and uh, spiritual path uh, because they would see the potential for change that actually is there uh, it's enormous uh, and that is what is so fascinating about this path uh, and the same thing is true about these hindrances they exist in a causal network that don't exist independently. So here the Buddha tells us what the cause of sensual desire is, or sensory desire. It is called, uh, caused by the, uh, the subha nimitta. This is what he translates here as the feature of beauty. Subha is beauty. And nimitta, we have seen this word before, we saw it in samadhi nimitta and many other uh, cases it means like feature or subject has many different meanings or basis or something like that uh, the basis of beauty uh, so whenever you see something as beautiful or attractive or likable uh, or, or whatever then of course desire for that thing arises because you think it's going to make you happy if something is nice it will make you happy and so uh, desire for that arises uh, so now, straight away, you, can, you also know the way out of this. If you know that seeing the beauty in something is the way that gives rise to desire, then all you have to do is to withdraw that attention, not seeing things as beautiful anymore. And that actually changes the whole thing around. Yeah, so if you... Uh, and, and of course, the, w one of the most powerful ways of doing that is to remember how unreliable and uncertain, uh, uh, somebody said they liked the word uncertain, I can't remember who that was, uh, uncertain for Anicca, and uncertain, unreliable or impermanent things are, uh, when you remember that, uh, you also see the downside of the beauty uh, aspect of things. Uh, how that attachment will lead you to suffer in the future when it disappears, uh, and all of these kind of things. Uh, and uh, that is a very uh, simple, it, it appears simple anyway on the surface. Of course, it is not so simple because we are so used to seeing the beauty in things that actually it takes quite a lot of work to see the alternative, to see the downside. That is where the work kind of needs to be put in, to remember the down, downside all the time. And there are some very simple techniques of doing this. And uh, you know, one of the kind of things that we obviously get attracted to are other people in this world. Uh, and one of the ways of overcoming attraction to other people is just to remember that uh, everyone, everyone is growing old, everyone is growing weak, and one day that you know we will, you will be there completely, uh, you know, close to death and old age. And this is the kind of the future for all of us. Uh, and of course, that takes away some of the attraction, at least the physical attraction that we might experience towards other people. Uh, the other one is just the general impermanence of relationships. They always are unreliable. You never know what's going to happen next. Yeah, and if you look at generally at how relationships go, very often they end up, you know, with some sort of problems in that way. People divorcing or relationships breaking up or people being unfaithful. And of course, we tend to think that our relationship will be different. That's what we think, otherwise we wouldn't go into relationships probably at all. We always think that we are smarter, we know the way around these things, but we are not smarter. Yeah, We are just like everyone else, this is the problem. I always, I, I always tend to think that I'm really smart. I will find a way around these things. And I, it's interesting, I look at the relation, I have one brother and one sister. 
and I look at their relationships. Yeah, they have my sister was married, then she got divorced, uh, then she got another kind of boyfriend, and never got married, and he died of cancer, uh, and now she's kind of single. Uh, and uh, <laughs> and then my brother, I look at his, he hasn't been divorced yet, he's still married to the same woman, but I look at the relationship, I think, do I really want that? Uh, and not really. <laughs> <laughs> And it's kind of interesting because this is my these are my family members, yeah. I'm very close to them. I'm very fond of both my brother and my sister. Yeah? They are some of the best friends I have. And uh, I probably would make the same kind of mistakes that they did. Yeah, get married to the wrong person, it wasn't so so great. Probably make exactly the same mistake and then have the same kind of suffering here. Yeah? So remember that, yeah, we tend to, all of us tend to make similar kind of mistakes in this world. We are not all that much smarter than other people, and our relationships are equally kind of difficult, tend to be difficulties. Some happiness, some difficulties, but there's always going to be some problems in these things. And always it ends in tears, yeah, if you have a really good relationship, boy, it is so hard when someone dies. I just saw my... Uh, my mother now, she, my father passed away and my mother was kind of left behind in a large house having known each other for 65 years, yeah, 65 years. And then you kind of left with this large house and there's like a vacuum in your life, this big hole being punched out in your life because you're so used to having someone around. It's really difficult. They obviously had a very good relationship lasting for 65 years. Uh, but still, it is very, very hard when these things happen so this is the sort of thing that you reflect on. Uh, and not just about relationships, of course, but about uh, um, all the uh, other aspects of the material existence, wherever you have desire, uh, yeah, wherever you feel attachment to things, uh, whether that is uh, material objects of the world or, or entertainment or, or whatever it is, where we see some attachment, uh, you remember the downside. Uh, so when you see something really beautiful that you must have, I've got to save up so I can buy that beautiful car or house or whatever it is, uh, remember the downside, remember all the problems. Uh, the subanimita is what draws you in, uh, and you forget that there is a very large asuba. Asuba is opposite. Uh, there is a very large non-beautiful aspect to all of these things. Uh. What is uh, also interesting about this suba nimitta is that uh, it is also used in the suttas in a positive way. Uh, the suba nimitta is uh, uh, used, it says you are suba adimutto when you go into a deep state of samadhi. And that's, in that case, suba adimutto means focused on the beautiful. Uh, and in this case, it refers to things like the Brahma-viharas, like the metta-contemplation or, or compassion-contemplation, where you're focused on the beautiful in, in a positive way, seeing the good spiritual qualities in people around you. So it's like with so many things in Buddhism, suba or beauty, whether it's bad to see it or not, depends on the situation and the circumstances. Yeah, if it, if it is done in the right way, if it is done in relation to spiritual qualities, uh, then it is a good thing to see the beauty in things. Uh, if it is done in relation to the worldly qualities, then it's going to have a negative impact. Uh, so many things in Buddhism are like that. There isn't kind of any absolute answer very often. Is this right? Is this wrong? Uh, it's often like, well, exactly how did it happen? What's the context? What is the kind of, uh, w what are all the other factors that come into play here? Uh, so... Uh, yeah, so this is that is the suba adimutto, and it's just this feeling of liberation when you uh, see uh, beauty in your meditation object. Uh, 
and then you get released through that subha. It's one of the vimokas. Vimokas is release, one of the meditation releases that you find there. So this is uh, the first of the uh, five hindrances. And generally speaking, just remembering the impermanence and the downside of the sensual world is really how you gradually overcome this and you kind of let go of these things. And then you build up your meditation and then you build down your sensual attachment at the same time. One going up, one going down, and then you have a nice balance. You don't kind of overdo things. This is the kind of the good approach to this. So... Uh, so frequent frequent improper attention. So improper attention is like seeing the beauty, forgetting the downside. Yeah. So if you do that a lot, then you fuel the arising of sensual desire, or you make it increase and grow as a consequence. So that is uh, again the most important one. Now let's go to the second of these sensual desires. And what fuels the arising of ill will, or when it has arisen, makes it increase and grow? There is the feature of harshness. Frequent improper attention to that fuels the arising of ill will, and when it has arisen, makes it increase and grow. Uh, harshness here, uh, or um, feature of harshness, is the patiga nimitta, and patiga means something like resistance. Yeah, so it is like the nimitta or the aspect or the feature of resistance in things. So when you find that you are, you see something or you think something and you find that your mind resists it. In other words, it is unpleasant in some way for you. Yeah, it is of course a very personal experience. It's not, it's not inherently unpleasant. It is just kind of, it is how you perceive these things. Um, uh, when you see that resistance to something, that is when uh, your ill will can arise. Yeah, it is very kind of common. When somebody speaks to you in a way that is unpleasant, you feel resistance towards that speech. You don't want to hear it. And then ill will can arise very quickly as a consequence of that. So this is how ill will arises. So, so what you have to be on the outlook here is that feeling of resistance when something is nice. Yeah? And then ill will can come very often soon after that. So... How do we deal with that in practice? I will talk about this later on, but uh, one of the thing, one of the ways of dealing with this uh, is just to remember that there are many things in life that are unpleasant, uh, that we cannot avoid, uh, that we actually do resist, uh, but actually are unavoidable. Uh, yeah, that some, for example, pains in the body is a classical example. Uh, not that that usually gives rise to ill will. It can give rise to ill will if you have a lot of pain in the body. You kind of get angry and upset after a while. Uh, but uh, so, but again, you have to bear that because it's just you can't do much about it except maybe taking some drugs and uh, and whatever, which is by the way perfectly okay. If you have pains, it's okay to take some uh, anti-pain medication. There's nothing wrong with that from a Buddhist point of view. You don't have to go around experiencing pain all the time. Uh, but another example is again speech. Yeah, it's one of the things that can very easily give rise to ill will in people because uh, it is so often that we hear speech we don't want to hear. It is such a, it's almost a daily thing. People say things that are a bit insensitive or not nice or we just, we'd happen to be in a bad mood because we're in a bad mood. We hear things that were never said in the first place. Uh, this happens as well. Uh, so again, the way to overcome this, one of the ways to, over, maybe the only way to overcome this, actually not the only way, 
But one of the ways uh, is to just remember that this is the way the world is. The world is full of speech that is unpleasant. And if you're going to allow yourself to be upset by speech, then you will, go, you will be upset a lot in this life. So you uh, just uh, go, when you hear about speech, you think that's exactly what I expected. Uh, yeah, that's, what I, that's kind of what, what can be expected in this life. Uh, and then you don't take it personally, because if it is a, almost like a natural principle, if you like, bad speech, uh, then why? It's like the wind in the trees. Why would you get angry with the wind in the trees? Uh, why get angry with bad speech? Uh, the reason we get angry is we take it personally. Yeah? We think the other person has it in for us. Yeah? So we kind of, what? You can't say that to me. If they said it to someone else, you just shrug your shoulders. But because they say it to you, that is why you get upset. Yeah? So it really is often the ego and the self, sense of self, that actually gets in the way. Yeah? So by seeing it as a natural thing or a natural principle, you take a lot of the ego out of the equation. And then it is easier to deal with as a consequence. Yeah? So again, uh, here you, uh, you can see the causes uh, for the ill will, uh, and then you know how to deal with this. Uh, I will talk more about this later on, because this is, uh, I think, a very important topic uh, that almost anyone can do something to improve. I think almost it's very hard to find someone who, who uh, is absolutely devoid of ill will. There are some people who are really saintly around, uh, but even they can sometimes get a bit upset about things. Uh. So, um, yeah, so frequently giving attention to that, uh, to that resistance, uh, yeah, that that is when ill will arises. So you want to avoid giving attention to that. You want to change your perspective. And this, of course, is the good news. We can always change our perspective and develop our minds in a different direction. So um, let us uh, move on to the next of these five hindrances. What fuels the arising of dullness and drowsiness, or when it has arisen, makes it increase and grow? There is discontent, sloth, yawning, sleepiness after craving, and mental sluggishness. Frequent improper attention to them fuels the arising of dullness and drowsiness, or when it has arisen, makes it increase and grow. So what does this mean? Well, this means that what does improper attention to these things actually mean? Well, what it means is that you are most likely seeing some delight in these things. Yeah, You're thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going to have a good meal and I'm going to have a nice rest and sleep a bit afterwards. And you think, oh, how, how nice. Yeah, And then you're kind of improper attention. You are indulging in that habit of sleepiness after eating here. Yeah? And then when you indulge in that, then, of course, that increases the desire for those things and you will have the same, create a habit. And then every day you will kind of have that kind of desire to, you know, whatever it is to sleep after you have had a good meal or whatever. Or one of the things that is also quite common, one of the reasons why people feel dull and sleepy is because of suffering. If you have a lot of suffering in your life, sometimes you just want to blot it out because it's just so painful to exist sometimes. If you have a lot of mental suffering, often the easiest way out is just to blot it out through dullness. So uh, uh, that is uh, 
so again, notice that instead of actually experiencing the suffering, that's kind of the ideal way, experiencing it, uh, because when you experience it fully, uh, you get some insight into suffering. You know what is going on. Uh, if you blot it out through dullness, uh, you think that there's a way out, uh, that you can just dull out. It's actually, it's no way out at all, because you, uh, what you're doing is just increasing the hindrances of the mind. Uh, uh, but you think there is a way out and you don't see it properly. But by seeing it properly, uh, of course, you get some insight into the problems of life. Uh, you see the suffering more clearly. Uh. So that's where the dullness arises again, by focusing on the happiness of dullness. Uh. Uh, but uh, again, uh, this is most important when you come to the very end, just before you enter samadhi, when the mind isn't fully sharp, yeah, and maybe for some reason you have a habit of thinking dullness is nice, so you don't sharpen up your mind fully, and so you indulge in that slight dullness, rather than make the mind super duper sharp. And when you come to samadhi, you really have to be really, really sharp, the mind has to be crystal clear, and really ultra kind of on on the ball at that particular point and there's no room for dullness at all huh? and that is the kind of one of the hallmarks of the mind in samadhi it is extremely sharp it is as sharp you have never before in your life if you never had samadhi before huh? you've never experienced a mind so sharp uh, until that particular point and you're kind of blown away by the ability of the mind to be so sharp so for that reason, uh, this is obviously an enemy of that sharpness, and you have to then overcome it. So, uh, but again, it is way down the track usually. Uh, don't worry too much if you feel a bit sleepy after eating. Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. That's not a big problem. It is just mentioned here as one of the things. Uh, and uh, even the Buddha is known to have slept sometimes after the meal in the afternoon on hot days in India. Uh, simply because sometimes you just need that sleep. Uh, so this is not to be too concerned about. Um, I always have to say this, otherwise people think, oh, now from now on I've got to be awake all the time. Uh, I can never really sleep except four hours at night. Uh, the middle watch of the night, everything else, I have to be super-duper sharp and on the ball uh, at all times. And they, they walk around like zombies because they don't get enough sleep and all, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so... so it's interesting because it is so easy to take these teachings wrong. And I, it's so common for people to get these things upside down and then they cause more suffering for themselves rather than use these things in a skillful way. So, um, next one. What fuels the arising of restlessness and remorse or when it has arisen makes it increase and grow? There is the unsettled mind. Frequent improper attention to that fuels the arising of restlessness and remorse, or when it has arisen, makes it increase and grow. There is the unsettled mind, the avupassama citta, uh, and uh, frequent, fre frequent improper attention to that means that you enjoy the unsettled mind. And you may think this is strange, but uh, Really, with a bit of reflection, I think you will understand why actually people enjoy this to some extent. And this again has to do with what I was mentioning just the other day about uh, being addicted to doing things. We identify with the doer. And when you do, you express your individuality. You express your uh, kind of your craving to exist. You are the doer. 
So because we are addicted to doing and because we identify with the doer, and everyone here is bound to identify with that doer, at least to some extent, uh, maybe not that much for some of you, but to some extent, uh, then uh, of course we also enjoy the unsettled mind because doing is precisely being unsettled. Uh, when you do, it means activity, it means not being settled. Uh, when the mind is fully settled, you're not doing anything at all, uh, you're just observing, you're being a passive observer in the present moment. Uh, so this is the problem. Yeah? So one of the things to overcome this particular hindrance is just to not to be too addicted to doing, to creativity, huh? but to learn, to enjoy the peace. And uh, one of the ways of doing this is just to watch in your meditation huh? and to see how you feel when the mind is really peaceful and calm. And what you see, of course, is that it is, it is very delightful. It's a wonderful state, far better than the doing, which actually tends to tire you out and uh, is problematic. The peace is a far superior state to the doing. Um, and uh, in fact, the, the doing is so problematic that sometimes we even identify with craving. Yeah? We think that craving is good fun, and we think that craving is fun precisely because the craving is what... Uh, often fuels the doing. You have to crave really to do. You have to want to do something. Yeah. So we identify also with the craving because the craving is closely related to the doing itself. Yeah. So you can see why uh, all of this is problematic. If you identify with craving, yeah, then you identify with the cause of suffering. Yeah. That's problematic. Yeah. If, you, if you are, basically you are the cause of suffering, if you identify with the craving, yeah. <laughs> so, and that sort of becomes uh, problematic. Yeah? If you don't want to suffer, you have to kind of uh, disidentify with the cause of suffering. Otherwise, uh, it's, gonna, it's just going to go on round and round forever. Huh? So this is quite simple, really, huh? but it's also profound at the same time. Huh? It's simple to understand, uh, but profound to put into the practice. Uh, and this is what is interesting about the, the suttas and the teaching of the Buddha in general. It is something everyone can really understand. You don't have to be intelligent, anything like that, to understand these teachings. Uh, but you need the wisdom to put it into practice. Uh, you need the ability and perseverance and commitment to do these things. Uh, that is the hard part. Uh, but actually understanding it is not that difficult. Uh, when you think about it, it actually all makes pretty good sense. Uh, it's just psychology, really. Yeah, the Buddha was the greatest psychologist. Uh, he was better than Freud and Jung and whatever they called her. <laughs> he was at the top of the psychological hierarchy. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so, so that is the fourth hindrance. And then we come to the last one. Here. And what fuels the arising of doubt? And when it has arisen, makes it increase and grow. There are things that are grounds for doubt. Frequent improper attention to them fuels the arising of doubt. Or when it has arisen, makes it increase and grow. So uh, uh, so here you have the doubt and uh, frequent improper attention to doubt or to, to, to certain things is uh, uh, really, it's like you, uh, you think about the possible reasons why the Buddha's teaching might be wrong or why it doesn't work or, and that kind of stuff. And you kind of speculate a lot and you read about all kind of things that are kind of beside the topic and you believe in all the kind of the... Uh, all the um, conspiracy theories on the internet and that kind of stuff. And then uh, uh, all of these things, they fuel doubt. 
if you read enough conspiracy theories, after a while you're going to start believing them, even though they're complete rubbish. Uh, this is kind of how doubt arises. Yeah, you too much attention on things that are rubbish. Uh, after a while, you kind of um, that rubbish kind of has an impact on you, uh, and this is how people get into these things. Uh, so there is, of course. It is right to have doubt. Sometimes uh, Buddhism, in Buddhism we shouldn't kind of push away doubt. Uh, doubt is a good thing. There are many doubtful things. Uh, and for example, one of those doubtful things for some of you might be the idea of rebirth. You might think that I don't know about rebirth, uh, so how can I believe in it? Uh, and that is actually a good way of thinking about it. Uh, the only thing I would say is don't kind of push it away completely. It's okay to have doubts about it in the sense that you don't know about it. Uh, but be open to the possibility that is really what it refers to, yeah? the idea of, of, of rebirth. So doubt is not wrong in Buddhism, but we shouldn't fuel it in an unskillful way. This is what this is about. So you always have doubts about everything, because if you have a lot of doubts about everything, you never get anything done. Yeah, all oh, this meditation, does it really work? I've been doing it for a long time. Is it, does it have a point? You know, what am I doing this for anyway? Maybe I should just go back and enjoy myself and, and, and whatever. And you can think like that endlessly, and nothing ever happens because of that. So sometimes you just have to make decisions. You have to say this is, you know, this is good. This, there's something positive going on here, and then carry on from that. And the way to overcome this doubt is really to just keep on studying these teachings and uh, uh, see if they kind of make sense in your own life. If they have, if they are properly based on things, and then. Uh, uh, especially when your mind is quite clear, not when your mind is full of defilements, because the defilements are going to distort the truth. But the more clarity you have, the less defilements you have in the mind, that is when you should judge whether these teachings make sense or not. And then you can build it up from there. Remember, it's very useful to remember that when you have defilements in the mind, you are deluded by uh, by definition, because defilements always distort reality. So if you have a lot of desire or even a bit of ill will or your mind is kind of tired and confused or whatever, it's the wrong time to try to understand what the Dhamma is about and that you can't really make good decisions about anything at such a time, let alone the actual Dhamma and these teachings. And this then gradually, by looking at things in this way, and gradually doubt comes to an end. I should perhaps say a little bit about the content of this particular doubt, because there are things that you will always doubt. Yeah, if you ask me the kind of the, the way to Melbourne from here, I would have lots of doubts about the way from here to Melbourne, because I have basically I still, even after coming here for a few years, I have a rough idea now, but uh, still I don't really pay much attention because someone else drives me, so I kind of look out the window and watch the kangaroos and the blue sky or whatever. But uh, uh, so these kind of things, worldly things, is not what is meant here. What is meant here is having doubts about uh, the spiritual path, and in particular, what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. Yeah, What are the qualities inside of you that are good? What are the bad ones? What are the skillful ones, the unskillful ones? What are the blameworthy ones and the blameless ones? The dark ones and the bright ones. And sometimes we don't understand this. And the deeper you go into your meditation, the more unclear it becomes. What is unskillful, what is blocking you from going further, is precisely this lack of being able to uh, make a distinction between skillful and unskillful qualities. And that is where kind of doubt comes in as your meditation deepens. And you have to undo 
that doubt and then you can kind of go through the whole thing here. So uh, um, that is uh, uh, the five hindrances and uh, now the next little sutta here gives some nice similes uh, on these five hindrances which I thought would be nice to read out. Uh, I don't know if I have talked about this here before. Uh, so let's have a look at these uh, hindrances. Uh, So this is from the uh, longer discourse at Asapura. Asapura means like the horse, horse town, a horse city. Asa is a horse in Pali. So the Maha Asapura Sutta is this one here. Uh, found in the middle length sayings number 39. And this is just a small extract from a very long sutta. And uh, this is how it goes. Bhikkhus, monks, mendicants, suppose... Uh, person were to take a loan and undertake business and the business were to succeed so they could repay all the money of the old loan and there would remain enough extra to maintain a wife <laughs> then on considering this he would be glad and full of joy yeah so this you can see this is com kind of comes from a slightly different era the way this is phrased but uh, <laughs> so um here you have the idea of taking out a loan. And uh, the idea in uh, Buddhism is that when you, uh, when you enjoy sensual pleasures, it is like taking out a loan. Yeah, you have a debt once you enjoy the sensual pleasures. Why, Why are sensual pleasures like a debt? And the reason is that when you... Remember, when we talk about sensual pleasures, we don't just mean the pleasure in its own right. What we are referring to are the objects of that world and our attachment to these things. So as soon as you enjoy certain things and your attachment arises as a consequence, which it always will do if it gives you real happiness and real pleasure. Why? Because we want happiness and pleasure, so you hold on to those things. It is just a natural consequence of uh, that desire for happiness. Uh, so as soon as you attach to something, uh, there is always going to be the downside when that thing gets taken from you. Uh, yeah, so it's a debt. It's a debt that must arise in paying back later on. And usually when you pay back, if it's a debt, there's also interest to be paid as well. So the suffering is always slightly greater than the happiness you get out of these things. Yeah, so sensual pleasures are always like a debt. So uh, when you kind of see that nice, something nice, remember, debt, debt, okay, move on to the next one. Uh, move away, uh, go do something else. Spiritual happiness? No debt, no downsider. Yeah, spiritual happiness. Uh, you enjoy the happiness, and uh, uh, you just go on, and uh, you don't actually. Uh, you can, if you get skilled with the spiritual happiness, you can just get it back again whenever you want, uh, and so you don't have that downside with it. Uh, so that is the difference between the two. Whereas the worldly things always have that uh, impermanence and unreliability to them. Uh. So then one day you repay the debt, and that is when the mind is free. From these things, uh, there is none of that left. The mind feels liberated and free. Uh, you repay that. Uh, and then you also have enough money to have a wife or husband. Yeah, <laughs> To keep a wife, it says here, yeah, because in those days it was the men who worked. And I guess the kind of wife was considered a little bit like a possession, I suppose, uh, at that time. Uh, so um, uh, you had enough money for that. And if you were a poor person, you probably wouldn't have a wife. Because, you know, you couldn't afford to have a wife uh, if you were very poor. Uh. 
So, and of course, that means that you have additional happiness. So that's really what this refers to here. You repay the loan, and then you have the additional happiness which comes from the spiritual pursuits that you get on the path. So that is the uh, kind of fairly, kind of uh, uh, not very uh, nice simile about uh, sensual pleasures. And then, then on considering this, you feel glad and full of joy because you have abandoned that loan that problem that you you had so that is the first one or suppose a man were afflicted suffering suffering and gravely ill and his food would not agree with him and his body had no strength but later on he would recover from the affliction and his food would agree with him and his body would regain strength then on considering this he would be glad and full of joy so this is ill will. Yeah? Ill will is like being afflicted, suffering, and gravely ill. That's what it is. So a very powerful simile for this thing we call anger and ill will. Usually the reason why we get angry is because we think there is good reason. We often get some degree of happiness out of anger. Yeah, You get some degree of power. It empowers you. Your anger, you get some energy or whatever. So anger actually feels good usually for people. And that's why they get angry. You get your own back. You're going to sort people out, whatever it is. And that is what kind of anger does. But actually, it is an affliction. It exhausts you. You are sick. And this is one of the things the Buddha used in the suttas. And one of the reasons you are sick is because you are really deluded when you get angry. You don't really know what is the right thing to do anymore. You think that taking revenge is okay. You think that doing bad things to other people is okay. This is what anger does to you. And you are really, your life, is, your perception is really distorted from what it really should be on the spiritual path. And it's a very nice way of thinking about people. Yeah, If they are angry, they are sick. And when you think about them like that, it kind of, okay, that's fine. You know, sick people, I should have compassion for them. And this is kind of the consequence of that. And of course, when you come out of that sickness, when you are able in a state of meditation to have metta for other people, perhaps metta, a little bit of metta for the whole world, and you realize that this difference between the two is so enormous, and you understand the kind of the suffering that actually is in anger. And the more, the deeper that anger is, the kind of the worse it is. Uh, the, you are completely immersed in it, perhaps occasionally. It's really, really bad and so incredibly destructive. And then one day you're out of it, you think, yay, no more anger. Wow, this is so nice. Uh, glad and joyful, piti sukha arising in the mind instead. Uh, or suppose a man were imprisoned in a prison house. Uh, but later he would be released from prison, safe and secure, with no loss to his property. Then on considering this, he would be glad or joyful. And of course, the prison is the tiredness and the lethargy or the drowsiness. It's like when, you are, when the mind is really tired, it's like you feel trapped in this tiredness. And it's very hard to see the way out. You can't, often can't see any way out. And sometimes all you have to do is you have to wait for that tiredness to abate and disappear, and then you kind of get out of it because of that. But tiredness is like feeling trapped in something and not being able to see clearly or to do anything right. And then the tiredness abates and you come out of that prison. Uh, prison simile can also be used for the whole sensual world. The whole sensual world can be regarded as a prison. 
you are trapped in the sensual world uh, and you think it's happy and nice uh, until one day you achieve samadhi and you step out of the whole sensual world uh, and you realize that you've been in prison all along uh, and now you have, you're freed from that particular world. Uh. But uh, especially it is used for the tiredness and lethargy and, and I'm sh- it's quite a nice and apt simile, I think, uh, and it kind of makes intuitive sense. Uh. Or suppose a man were a slave, not dependent but dependent on others, unable to go where he wants, but later he would be released from slavery, self-dependent, independent of others, a freed man able to go where he wants. Then, on considering this, he would be glad and full of joy. And this is restlessness and remorse, yeah, the restlessness that drives you on, that whips you on the back and says, go, move, get your act together. The craving that, uh, uh, you know, it, one of the nice little sutta passages that I often read out on retreats is from the Ratapala Sutta, where it is said that you, we are a slave to craving. Yeah. Craving is the slave master. Huh? Yeah, Craving drives you on. Huh? And of course, we think that we enjoy the craving. We think the craving is good. We think that craving kind of drives us towards happiness and all of these kind of things, when really it is the exact opposite. Craving is in charge, and we are the ones who say, yes, master, where do you want me to go? And we kind of follow along whatever craving says you want to go. And craving and restlessness are very closely related to each other. Craving, restlessness, agitation, all of these kind of words and ideas and it is, it is we who are the slaves to these things. And again, uh, notice the difference in your meditation practice. Uh, when you start to become peaceful, when you start to have a clarity of mind uh, and feel the distinction, it is just so much more pleasant to actually be peaceful than to be uh, run around by craving uh, all the time. Uh. So uh, don't think you are in charge of craving. Uh. It is craving who is the a master and you are the slave uh, and craving drives you around uh. of course it doesn't feel like that when you crave uh, because you are deluded at that particular time uh, so you have to be peaceful sometimes before you can actually see these things uh. only then do you get perspective on what is going on uh. this is kind of the problem with life yeah we cannot see these things when they're happening very often uh, precisely because these factors are all deluding uh. they delude you while they're going on uh. And you can actually only see it afterwards when these things have disappeared. Then you understand what is actually happening here. And um, so much of the spiritual path is like that. So much even of scientific research is about that. You have to kind of uh, uh, get rid of something or you have to... um, uh, especially in Buddha, in, on the spiritual path, you have to get rid of it before you can understand it. Because by its absence, uh, it becomes clear what was there before her. Uh. Uh, and otherwise it is impossible to fully comprehend what these things are. Yeah. So that is the restlessness. Uh, and uh, then we have the last one. Uh, and uh, the last one here, or suppose a man with wealth and property were to enter a road across a desert, uh, but later on he would cross over the desert, safe and secure, with no loss to his property, then, on considering this, uh, he would be glad and full of joy. Uh. So, uh, the idea that having doubt is like being on a desert road. Uh, yeah, desert road where there is no food and no drink and there is not, nothing to really sustain you. Uh, it is dry and kind of meaningless and pointless. Uh, you don't really know whether you're going to be able to cross over or not. Uh. 
And that is a bit like having doubt means you don't really know what good spiritual teachings are. You have doubt about the Dhamma, you have doubt about everything, and instead you go kind of worshipping BMWs or whatever it is that people worship. And of course, that leads to this feeling of a desert inside. There is no fuel, there's no oasis. There's a, uh, the piti and the sukkha, the happiness on the path, is what kind of gives a sense of which makes you drink, it makes you feel full, it makes you feel complete. All the other stuff makes you feel empty, and it's like you are on a desert track. Having doubt is like is is precisely like that. And again, I think it's a, the Buddha is really a master of these similes because they make very intuitive sense. As soon as you see them, you understand what is going on. Maybe not always. The one about debt for sensual desire is not as obvious. But the other ones here, I think, are fairly obvious and clear. Uh, and you kind of understand uh, uh, what is happening here. Uh. So you cross over that doubt, you gain that uh, uh, confidence in the teaching of the Buddha, that faith in those teachings, and then you have something. You have a refuge in life. And having a refuge is the opposite of having doubt. Uh, having a refuge means that you have somewhere you can go for answers. Uh, you have something that you can use to guide you in life. Uh, that is kind of the point of refuge. Uh. And uh, you have something, not only just any old thing to guide you, but you have something really meaningful and purposeful. Huh? So to be curious, these five hindrances, uh, when these five hindrances are unabandoned in oneself, uh, a monk or anyone else sees them respectively as a debt, a disease, a prison house, slavery, and a road across a desert. Uh, but when these five hindrances have, have been abandoned in oneself, you see yourself as free from debt, healthy, f released from prison, free from s slavery, and a land of safety. Yeah. Sounds good, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so there you are. So um, uh, that is the uh, five hindrances, uh, and uh, together with their uh, kind of similes, uh, and uh, uh, the next thing I'm going to do, and this is going to happen tomorrow, I'm going to go through a couple of suttas that I always go through on these retreats uh, and they talk in more detail about how to abandon defilements of the mind. Uh, and uh, so that is going to happen tomorrow, so a bit more detail about these things. Uh, in the meantime, please uh, continue enjoying yourself uh, and we will continue with some meditation as usual at 7.30 this evening. Yeah.